Section three of Take It From Dad by George G. Livermore. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Section three. Letters of October thirtieth and November sixth. Lynn, Mass. October thirtieth, nineteen something. Dear Ted, somehow the price of cut souls is worrying me more just now than the fact that you have not been elected to one of the school clubs. I realize that your not making one of the school clubs yet is a terrible tragedy in your young life, but I feel as though you are going to survive, and perhaps you will be elected to one after all. I've found it a pretty good rule not to figure a shipment of shoes a total loss, even when the Jabba writes that he's returning them, and if I were you I wouldn't borrow trouble until it's necessary. Trouble is the easiest thing in the world to borrow, and about the hardest to discount at the bank. Maybe it's just as well you are having your touch of society chills and fever young, for it may save you from making a bigger fool of yourself later on. No one minds a young fool much, but an old one is about as sad an object as a Louisville distiller attending a Supreme Court decision on the Prohibition Law. Society is all right, some of it, but just because you eat dessert at the end of your dinner is no reason why you should make a meal of it. A little society, like the colic, goes a long way, and you want to remember that a man, like a piece of sole leather, usually figures out to what he is. Burns, not Frankie the lightweight, but Bobby, who used to edit the Edinburgh Daily Blade, back in the days when freshmen wore whiskers and plug hats, hit the nail on the head when he said, A man's a man, for that. I'll never forget when Aunt Carrie caught the society fever, nor will she. It was a couple of years before I was married, and it didn't make me want to postpone having a home of my own, although it did influence me to choose a girl who was society-proof. After your grandmother soul died, Carrie ran our old house and was doing a pretty good job of it, until Algernon Smiley came to Epping as principal of the grammar school. Algernon wore spectacles, a lisp, and long hair, and he could spout more poetry than a gusher well can oil. At that he was a harmless sort of insect, if the girls of the town hadn't taken him seriously. Algernon was a graduate of Harvard, and the only thing I ever had against that university. It didn't take him long to discover there was no real society in Epping, and not being at all backward about coming forward when he had anything to say, Carrie and her girlfriends soon had the same idea. Now Epping had staggered along over two hundred years without the help of society, and was doing quite well, thank you, with its church sociables, bean suppers, and candy pulls, until Algy butted in. Everything we did was all wrong. There was no culture, and having the hearty backing of all the girls, he set out to culturate us. His first offence was a series of lectures, but after the young men had listened to him rave about the art of early Egyptian dancing, and the history of nothing before something, they unanimously had previous engagements when Algy sprang a lecture. Next Algernon started a Browning Club, which consisted, so near as I can judge, in his reading a poem, and then every one in the club expressing a different opinion as to what the poem meant. It may be good business for a poet to write a poem no one can understand, but believe me, when I buy a rhyme for a streetcar ad, it's got to be one every woman will recognize as advertising the princess shoe. To get back to Algy. 
after a while the attendance at the browning clubs began to get mighty poor and he had to think up a new scheme to keep the town from getting decultured somehow the little cuss had scraped an acquaintance with some pretty solid men on the harvard faculty and he managed to drag several of them up to epping to deliver lectures with the result that the culture business began to show a healthy growth epping was not stupid it had been bored now while algy had been trying to culturate epping he'd worn considerable horsehair off the sofa in farmer boggs parlour sitting up nights with his daughter ruby ruby was a nice cow-like girl who hadn't much to say and proved it when she talked and as algy was never so happy as when he was doing all the talking he got along with her fine then too pa boggs owned free and clear the best farm in the township and had fifteen thousand dollars salted away in boston and maine stock and algy for all his culture wasn't overlooking any bets like those where algy went wrong was in patronizing people he thought didn't know as much as he whenever old man boggs juggled beans with his knife algy would smile upon him so condescendingly the old man would almost bust with rage and when mrs boggs said hain't he would raise his eyes as though calling upon heaven to forgive her but what blew the lid off came at a browning club meeting that carrie had insisted upon having at our house algy imported a noted professor to give a talk on prehistoric fish and when the great man had finished we all stood around the girls telling him how much they enjoyed it and the men wishing he would go so they could retire to the kitchen and shirt-sleeves poor ruby during a lull in the general conversation started the old chestnut about ben perkins the lightkeeper at kittery falling down the lighthouse stairs ending with and you know he had a basket of eggs in one hand a pitcher of milk in the other and when he reached the bottom they had turned into an omelette ain't spinal stairs awful at the word spinal the professor snickered and algy who was always nasty when ruby made a break said i'm surprised at your ignorance ruby you mean spiral ruby began to cry and every one looked uncomfortable i was hopping mad i guess maybe it was the tight patent leather shoes i had on anyway i'd seen about enough of algy shut up you goat i snapped at him haven't you brains enough to know she meant the back stairs algy claimed he was insulted i allowed it wasn't possible then he said he was a fool to have tried to culturize epping i said i reckoned his allowing he was a fool made it unanimous and invited him out in the yard to settle things, although I never could have hit him if he had accepted my invitation. In two weeks Algy left town, and the next fall Ruby married Will Hayes over at George's Mills, and has been happy ever since. Ted, I wouldn't think too much about those clubs. There's no use worrying about what people think of you. Probably they don't. You've only been at Exeter a few weeks, so if i were you i wouldn't jump into the river yet now i'll admit it will please me if you are elected to a club but if you aren't i'm not going to go around with my head bowed in shame and neither are you for ten years from now no one will be greatly interested whether you belonged to the belt of pelts or the platter dates and above all things don't toady eating dirt never got anyone anything look at russia your affectionate father, William Sowell.
Lynn Mass, November 6th, 19-something. Dear Ted, I'm glad you've been elected to the Plata dates, if for no other reason than because now that you have stopped worrying whether you would be, you will have time to worry about your studies. Don't you fool yourself that because E stood for excellent at the high school, I don't know that it stands for execrable at Exeter. Now you are on the football team, it's better to have an E on your sweater than on your report. I thought when you were elected to the plot of dates you would be bubbling over with joy, but your letters are about as cheerful as a hearse. The teachers are picking on you, the football coach doesn't recognize your ability, and even the seniors so far ignore your presence, by failing to remove their hats and step into the gutter when you come along. Whatever you do, don't get sorry for yourself. There's nothing in the world more silly than a person who is sorry for himself, and the ones who are, are always the ones who have no cause to be. Now I don't believe for a minute that the teachers at Exeter have picked you alone, out of five hundred boys, to jump on. They're too busy, and I guess your coach's main idea is to get a team together that can lick Andover, so it might be well, if you are finding people hard to please, to ask yourself if it's their fault. If you go into your classrooms with only part of your lesson learned, you aren't going to fool your teachers very long, and if you go on to the football field with an air that the coach can't show you anything, he's not likely to try. Half-knowledge is the most dangerous thing in the world. I never saw a successful shoe manufacturer who only had half-knowledge of making shoes, and I guess Walter Camp isn't putting anyone on his All-American who only knows how to play his position halfway. You might as well make up your mind, Ted, to learn Virgil from the Arma Virimque Cano thing to Fini, and it's just as well to let the coach think he can show you something about football. He only played three years on the Harvard varsity, and even if you do know more than he, it will make him feel good. Being sorry for yourself is a bad habit. I had it once for a whole year, and believe me, it was the worst year I ever put in, and I'm counting the panic of 1907, too. I'd been super over at Clough and Spinney's in Georgetown for three years, and had the little shop running like a high-grade watch, when Henry Larney of Larney Brothers in Salem died, and left the whole show to his son Claude. But in trust, nevertheless, as the wills say, and it's a mighty good thing he did, for Claude spent most of his time and all his money at Sheepshead Bay in Saratoga Springs, and couldn't tell a last from a foxing. Old Josiah Lane was trustee, and having about as much respect for Claude's ability as a shoemaker as I have for the Bolsheviki as businessmen, he looked around for someone to run the factory and lighted on me. When I got over being dizzy at the thought of running a five-thousand-pair factory, I grabbed the job, because I was afraid I'd refuse it if I stopped to consider the responsibility. That's a pretty good plan for you to follow, Ted. Don't let a big job scare you, just lay right into it, and if you keep both feet on the floor, and don't rely too much on the bridge to make fancy shots, pretty soon the job begins to shrink, and you begin to grow, and before long you fit. I had every possible kind of trouble with the factory, a strike that tied us up flat for eight weeks in the middle of the summer, to a fire in the storehouse that destroyed five thousand cases of shoes, and every blamed time I was in the midst of a mess, 
old Josiah Lane would blow in and blow up. It seemed like the old cuss was always hovering around like a buzzard over a herd of sick cattle, and when he lighted on me I felt as though he went away with chunks of my hide in his skinny fingers. I was the worst shoemaker in the world, couldn't handle help, was a rotten financial man, and had no head for details, and was so poor a buyer it was a wonder some of the leather companies didn't run me for governor. As for production, he could make more shoes with a kit of cobbler's tools than I could turn out with the help of the S.M. Company. That old bird used to sit in the office chewing fine-cut, and drawling out sarcastic remarks, until I could have knocked him cold. But even then I realized that a man who made shoes from pegs to welts knew something, and I needed all the knowledge I could get. After every bawling out, old Josiah used to creak to his feet, remarking, I'll give you another trial, though I'm foolish to do it, while I stood by trembling with rage, wishing I wasn't married so I could bust his ugly old head open with a die. Gosh, I used to get mad for the things that happened weren't my fault. First I thought how foolish I'd been to leave my soft job at Clough and Spinney's. Then I began to get mad at the factory myself, and all the daily troubles that were forever piling in on me, and I determined I'd lick that job if it killed me. I gave more time to listening to old Josiah at my periodical dressing-downs, and less time to hating him, and I lived in that old ark of a factory until I knew every nail in every beam in its dirty ceiling, and could run any machine in it in the dark. Along in the late fall the monthly balance sheets began to look less like the treasury statements of the Dominican Republic, but they weren't so promising that there was any danger of J. P. Morgan coming to me for advice on how to make money, and on the 15th of December I wrote out my resignation and handed it to old Josiah. The old man never even read it, just tore it up, threw it under the desk, and sat chewing his fine cut until I thought I'd jump out the window if he didn't say something. "'Want to get through, do ye?' he drawled at last. "'I don't want to. I am,' I snapped back. Old Josiah reached in his pocket and handed me a paper. I opened it and nearly fainted. It was a three-year contract calling for an annual one-thousand-dollar increase in salary. When I hit the earth again, I looked at the old man sitting there wagging his jaws and grinning, but somehow his smile had lost its sarcasm, and he seemed less like one of these gargoyle things that the foreigners hang on the outside of their churches, and more like a shrewd kindly old Yankee shoemaker. Ted, I learned something that year besides how to run a big shoe factory. I learned that a rip-snorting bawling out doesn't necessarily mean your superior thinks you a lightweight. If he couldn't see ability, he wouldn't take the trouble to cuss you. So when your teachers, or the coach, land on you, don't think of Harry Carey, that isn't right, but it's the nearest I can come to Jap for suicide, but if they land on you twice for the same mistake, pick out a nice deep spot in the jungle. If you don't, the ivory hunters will get you. Cheer up, Ted, crepe is expensive, and when you get blue, be glad of the things you haven't got. I will be in Exeter Saturday afternoon. Look for me on the one-thirty. Your affectionate father, William Soule. End of section three.